Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True Crime New England. What's up, everybody? Hello. Welcome back to another episode. Thank you for joining us on this Thursday. We are so excited to have you. And for many reasons, it's a good case. We love to see you. And we're just in good moods because it is Katie's birthday at the time of this recording coming out. Yeah, it's actually crazy how this episode comes out on my birthday. Well, me and the audience have a surprise for you. We're all going to sing you happy birthday right now. (laughs) Ready, everybody? One, two, happy. Just kidding. Like last year, I will never subject anyone to that. But the sentiment remains the same. Happy birthday, Katie. Thank you. Very exciting. How old are you turning? The big 2-4, 24. Nice. Awesome. That's very exciting. It's almost, when you're 24, your world changes. You go from a a, a girl to a woman. <laughs> Just kidding. Really at the age of 24? Yes. <laughs> As someone who is already 24, I can tell you right now that the change between who I was and who I am now was insignificant. There was almost nothing. Nothing happened. 25 is the big one because yes. that's when your brain fully develops. Right. Well, for mostly women. for men, but... Oh, right. We've been developed. We've been developed. Right. Maybe a little bit more on our parts, but for the men, that's when it really sinks in. Not for all men, though. <laughs> so that's interesting. But regardless, as we are recording this before your birthday, unfortunately, we can't, we don't know how your birthday went. But I can guess that it went decently. I hope so. Do you have any plans? I'm working. Oh, and then I'm going to my mom's after for like little birthday dinner celebration. Okay. And then we recorded the day after my birthday. So that'll be fun. I can give you your gifts then. Yay. Yay. Liz is usually a very good gift giver, you guys. I'm anxious because I, we're recording this. It's like two days before August. I have two two gifts for you, which normally I have like nine at this point. So I'm like... (laughs) I'm kind of like rocking nervously in my chair, like, oh, shit, I don't have anything for her. But I'm not worried for reals. You're easy. You're easy to shop for in a way that we are so similar. It's easy to get that kind of figured out. Yeah. And we've been friends for so long. It's just like, I will literally be in the shower. I'm like reaching for my phone. I'm, let me add this to the list. Yes. Let's just get like right. an idea will come to me. Right. It's not something that I have to scour for. No. It's not just, I get a little idea for gifts for you. And it's like, perfect. Yeah, it just comes naturally. It's perfect. I love it. So right. I'm very excited. And I think, you know, it sucks that you have to work. But hopefully it'll be a good evening nonetheless. I fucking hope so. And then the weekend closest to my birthday, I'm going to a winery. That'll be fun. Nice. Yeah. And then I'll just be coming back from Ireland. Four days before my birthday, I fly back from Ireland. Um, going to Ireland for a couple days just for funsies. So that'll be cool. Awesome. Yeah. So by the time, so you're coming back on the 13th or, you know, by the time it's your birthday on the 17th, you'll just be getting over the jet lag. I hope so. So that'll be great. (laughs) You'll just be starting to feel like yourself. Hell yeah. You know what? I think because you have night shift experience, you're probably going to be okay. But how exciting. What a a fun week for you. Yeah, it'll be good. And then probably in those days between working and unpacking, I will be packing, packing to move. Nice. Busy month. Very busy, busy, busy month of August, but it'll be good. Yeah. It'll be my month. Yes, (laughs) it's your month. Leo, when does the 
Leo season start? July 22nd. Oh, so, okay. You're at the tail end of Leo season. Mm-hmm. For those of you um, astrology heads, which I am not, Katie is Leo, and um, take that how you will. I don't know. It's great. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> I don't know. My brother's a Leo. Oh, fun. Yeah. Well, not really. But yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, happy birthday. We're, you know, we here at True Crime New England, all the staff, we love you and we we appreciate you. And guys, that's only funny because it's literally just me. <laughs> <laughs> we have a running joke that it's like editing. Liz Corey and Katie King. Yeah. <laughs> Website. Liz Corey and Katie King. <laughs> Social media. Liz Corey and Katie King. Director. Liz Corey. Katie King. Producer. Liz Corey. <laughs> Costume design. Liz Corey. Katie King. It's just <laughs> research assistant. <laughs> right. It's all us. It's all us. Yeah. But yeah. Thanks. Thank you guys. Yeah. And to celebrate, we have the worst fucking story ever told. So that's good. I really did not think this case would be as intense as it was. It just kept going. Yes. And we all know that I, in terms of true crime topics, I love a good serial killer. And we don't really have that that frequently in New England. So looking into this, I was like, hell yeah. As in, this will be a good story to tell. Not hell yeah, this man murdered a whole bunch of women. Not that at all. But it's good. It's going to be a good case. I would really recommend sticking around. Yeah. Big thank you to Mia C, who sent this to us via Instagram DMs. Mia's mom actually met this guy one time at a birthday party, which is probably terrifying. Yeah. And Craig S via our website submission tool. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Eliza P also bought us five coffees. Thank you so much, Eliza. She wrote, love true crime and have lived all over New England. Your wicked podcast rocks, which I love the little pun. Yeah. Oh, that's cute. Get it? Like wicked New England. Wicked. It's evil. Yes. I love that. Thanks, Eliza. Thank you, Eliza. That's very kind. So much positivity before the worst fucking story. I love it. But guys, I definitely recommend you stick around. This guy is messed up, but the story is so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like it always is. There's always the origin stories and like, oh, the aftermath and some fun facts about this man and um, ultimately how he met his end. Yeah. So. And without further ado, today we will be covering Michael, Michael Bruce, Bruce Ross. Katie. I don't know about you, but I have a ton of sources today. Let me hear what you got. Is it a legitimate source? Debatable. <laughs> but you know it's going to be a good one when you got Wikipedia, bitch. Sure. I, you know, I didn't use Wikipedia specifically, but I did go through their little resources at the bottom. Yeah. It's more of a running joke at this point, you guys. It yeah. really is. Like, Wikipedia, it's going to be a big boy yes. of a case. Yeah. As well as... Murderpedia, which is actually reliable. <laughs> Deathpenaltyinfo.org, crimelibrary.org, clarkprosecutor.org, a very hefty article. Mm. The New York Times, Times 2, and newstimes.com. Nice. I too had Murderpedia. I had an article from CNN. I had an article from the New York Times. I also used clarkprosecutor.org, which was great. I used an article from the University of Notre Dame magazine i use crime library the cinemaholic news times find a grave and actually i didn't connect them but two articles from new york times so never mind new york times times two all right 
let's get into Michael Bruce Ross, a.k.a. the Roadside Strangler. Dun-dun. Dun-dun. Also, he was listed as the Eggman in some places. Did you see that? I wonder if that was just from his early childhood years. But I know, and I read in an article, too, that they really only called him the Roadside Strangler in one place i think it was like a tv show or something yeah. that the producers made up in the back room like oh the roadside strangler would be a sick name mm-hmm. but it's like mm-hmm. I, it makes sense it does it's true it's yeah. factual to his mo yeah but it, no it didn't really like nobody's like oh the roadside strangler aka michael Raw. you know like there are some killers like that we know of that have names like that that are referred to like it's just universally known that Jeffrey Dahmer is the Milwaukee cannibal, like things like that, you know. But anyway, he was at least once called the roadside strangler. So Michael Bruce Ross was born on July 26th, 1959 to parents Dan Ross and Patricia Lane. He was the oldest of four and he was raised on a chicken farm in Brooklyn, Connecticut, which maybe was why he was called the Eggman or at least referred to it at least once or twice that I saw. Michael's childhood, like most of these killers, was not an easy one. To be fair, it also wasn't the worst story that's been told. So, you know, everyone has a difficult childhood from time to time. Not everyone becomes a murderer. Mm -hmm. Everybody who knows true crime, likes true crime, has heard that sentiment before. Michael's mom, Pat, had been in high school when she became pregnant with him. And as a result, she was forced into being a mom and a wife well before she was ready And that's even if she ever wanted to be one anyway, a wife or a mom. That being said, she had four kids in five years. So birth control wasn't like super popular. And also it just wasn't like you got pregnant and you just had the baby. Like you didn't, there was no other way, really. Pat was not only young and unhappy to be a mom, but she was also psychologically unstable She became physically and mentally abusive towards her children, specifically Michael. And there was even a point where Pat became so unstable, so volatile, that she was admitted to a psychiatric institution twice. That's not good for a child to witness, period. Mm -hmm. But also, to add to his hardships, Michael had a teenage uncle who used to babysit him. When he was eight years old, this uncle allegedly used their close relationship to sexually assault him. That same uncle killed himself when he was only 14. So that makes me wonder, how old was he when he was abusing Michael? Right? He can't have been much older if Michael was eight. Terrible. It's just, oh, it's just awful. So the uncle who killed himself actually was, he was working on the farm. So once he died, it kind of fell on the responsibility of Michael. So Michael's new job became to kill the sick and malformed chickens on the farm. And supposedly how he would kill them is strangling them with his hands. How fucked up is that? Hey, let's just talk about that. That's so messed up. Wow. Like, chickens, you know, they you kill them by chopping their head off. That's just how it goes. Strangling them? What the hell? That's so personal to the chicken. Yeah, and I wonder, too, honestly, if maybe that was something that he came up with, like his own method, and maybe he enjoyed it, or Mm -hmm. maybe he wasn't super opposed to that task. Right. It's awful. Yeah. And all this is being said, Michael 
excelled in school. He was very smart. He graduated from high school in 1977 with dreams of running his own farm, and he had a special love for animal science, which I hate to say I do too, so it's really unfortunate, but he was so smart. There's no denying it. After graduating high school, Michael actually attended Cornell to study agricultural economics. Wow. Like, you, Cornell is an Ivy League school. Mm-hmm. You don't just go there because you like animals. Like, he's legit, which makes it all the more terrifying. Yeah. He was social. He joined a frat. He was a part of the FFA. He was in the, he was in it. And interestingly, what we know now about Michael, you know, we as in you and I, Katie, so far, you guys will learn about him. He's not great with women. In high school, in college, he was pulling bitches left and right. He was getting beautiful women. He even got engaged to one once. He was a player. And you look at pictures of him now or like when he was arrested and you're like, what? He was so psychologically disturbed. That's just so interesting that he, A, went to Cornell and B, was able to get women. Yeah, especially because from a young age, he developed an antisocial personality. Right. And so that notoriously is a major red flag. A lot of serial killers are identified as someone that's having an antisocial personality. Right. Because an antisocial personality, that's like a total lack of regard for yourself and others. Right. A tendency to lie and being very good at lying. Yes. Impulsive behavior, going on to break laws. A lot of the kids that I worked with when I was a pediatric psych nurse Mm -hmm. had either antisocial tendencies or they were starting to develop an antisocial personality. And you can really see it in someone. But I'm wondering if, you know, because it was the 70s, the 80s, it's Cornell. It seems like he's charming almost and he's being manipulative he's being manipulative towards these women right to get women he's not doing it naturally he doesn't have a natural air of confidence right he's a piece of shit and he's so manipulative Mm -hmm. and not okay upstairs right and it is very interesting that you know maybe it was because 70s and 80s you left your doors unlocked and there really weren't people running amok killing others like this yeah It seemed like people were a lot more trusting. Especially in New England, Mm -hmm. for sure. So, I mean, and that's a good point. Like, all of his charming and stuff was because of his narcissism and his true desire to deceive and inflict pain mentally, at the very least, on these women. And he did so successfully. And it all kind of started when... The worst of it started when Michael was a sophomore at Cornell. Keep in mind, he graduated from Cornell, so he went and he did his time. He developed the habit of stalking young women around campus. And it wasn't super long until stalking turned into rape. And it's, you know, there's no way of knowing, but it's speculated that he raped dozens of women. Dozens. On September 28th, 1981, Micah was riding his bike through LaSalle City, Illinois, when he kidnapped a 16-year-old girl. Mm. He dragged her into the woods and gagged her with a handkerchief and a belt before police arrived just in time. Micah was charged with unlawful restraint and paid a $500 fine and served two years probation before he went back to Connecticut. His first murder and multiple other killings were soon to follow. Yes. And you know what's so interesting, too, is that Well, besides the fact that he got 
caught for this attack. He had also been caught before doing like a stint in jail for sexually assaulting another teenage girl. And this is all while, you know, he's raping women, he's stalking them, eventually murdering them. He is employed. He is a life insurance salesman. I hate the irony, but he has like, he has a job. He has a social life that probably isn't that great. Like he's, it's so like Ted Bundy-esque. And he's leading a double life. He really is. Like he's using him being social and him carrying on a job as a facade yeah. for what he really has underneath. Mm-hmm. He was said that as a little boy, he had fantasies about women, about bringing them to an underground place and hiding them to keep him to love him. Yikes. There actually was a 1992 article published by a woman named Karen Clark, who was writing all of this about him. She said that as an adult, these fantasies grew more sexual and progressively more violent. Mm. And it's interesting, too, because of the abuse with his mom. Right. A lot of serial killers who are abused by their mom or they have a really troubled relationship with their mom go on to associate women Mm-hmm. with that hatred or maybe they are doing things to women that they wish they could be doing to their mom right i think that is part of it i think another part is that he's just a piece of shit yes absolutely and we'll go on to talk about he just was able to do all of these things and go unchecked right absolutely and i think you know he was using that facade and that antisocial personality to his benefit how would people notice or hold him accountable if he's hiding it so well Again, very Ted Bundy-esque. Mm-hmm. And that, I only say that because that is, when you think of antisocial personality disorder, narcissism, manipulation, Ted Bundy is usually the first person that comes to mind within the true crime realm because that is exactly what he was and how manipulative and how they're just so similar. And it's clear that Michael was using this to get women and to get his way into, you know, murdering young women and girls. Mm-hmm. So, Michael is connected to the murder of eight young women, all spanning between the years 1981 and 1984, not only in Connecticut, but also in New York. Mm -hmm. So, we'll take, yes, I know New York is not a part of New England, but it is a part of his crime spree in the order, so we will include them. But he was only active for three years, and he killed eight women that we know of. I bet you there maybe is one or two more. I wouldn't be surprised. I think that's a fair speculation. Yeah. Michael's first documented victim was a 25-year-old student at Cornell University. She was from Vietnam, and her name was Zong Nayaptu. That is my best attempt at a pronunciation. I did a couple Google searches, watched pronouncement videos from people in Vietnam. Sure. I know there's a couple different regional accents and ways you can pronounce that, but that is my best attempt. Sounds good to me. She was absolutely brilliant. She was known as being on the quiet side, but very kind. She was kicking ass Mm. in her studies at Cornell. Mm. Her father said she was a little lady. She was just under five feet tall and a little under 100 pounds. Oh, my God. So petite. So little. She worked hard. She gave a lot of her time to help others by volunteering with cancer patients and sponsoring orphaned children. Holy shit. That's like so nice. That's perfect that's like that's a pageant queen answer you know yes, like yes i spend my time volunteering with cancer patients yes and sponsoring orphans yeah like, literally what? oh my god what a good person yeah on the night zone was killed she had been studying in warren hall which was the same campus building where michael had been working at at the time mm-hmm. her body was found in a creek in the bottom of a gorge on may 12th 1981 very close to the school 
The gorge was actually a known spot for people jumping, whether it was really stressed out students or just people in the area. Right. And Zong's death was actually initially thought to be suicide. Oh, yeah. Her friends told police she would never have killed herself. You know, Mm -hmm. she's busting her ass. Right. She's trying to make her family proud. She's spending her time doing amazing things. Mm -hmm. She's very happy. Right. You know, this was very out of character for her. Mm -hmm. And so police were thinking, okay, maybe it's not suicide. But what happened? Mm. Her case was cold for several years before Michael confessed to her murder during a 1987 session with a psychiatrist. Mm. More on her later. Yes. How tragic. She was so accomplished at mm-hmm. so, such a young age, too. On January 5th, 1982, 17-year-old Tammy Williams was walking home from her boyfriend's house in Brooklyn, Connecticut. If you remember, Michael Bruce Ross was born and raised in Brooklyn, Connecticut. That night, she never made it home. Tammy's family held out hope that she was still alive, but unfortunately, Michael Bruce Ross intercepted her near his family chicken farm, which he still lived at, while she was walking. She actually knew Michael. They had grown up together around the same age, and she used to hang out on his chicken farm or like around, because, you know, there's enough acreage that you can hang out in the back and smoke weed or something and not be caught so she knew who michael was he intercepted her he raped her and then he strangled her her body was actually found several years later in a fieldstone wall tammy's best friend tina stated quote i can still remember the way she laughed she had a heart of gold i still remember her giggle she was a fun person to be around and oh. she said that they would take shortcuts together yeah. and cut through the chicken farm oh. to get to different places. Wow. 16-year-old Paula Pereira from Wallkill, New York, was not a stranger to hitchhiking and felt like she could trust most people, especially because she lived in a small rural area. Mm-hmm. She even told, I believe it was her boyfriend, he said, you know, I really don't like you hitchhiking. Mm. And she said, no, I'm not going to get with someone crazy i'm not going to get with someone i don't trust you know i have a pretty good gauge for those kinds of things which i'm sure is true right however we know that michael is very good at putting on a facade yes that's that antisocial personality coming Mm -hmm. through paula was murdered by michael in march of 1982 after he picked her up on his way to connecticut from cornell Mm. he raped her and dumped her body on a side road in a marshy area near interstate 84 And it took 18 days to find her body. How sad. How fucking awful. Paula's childhood friend Barbara has said that it frustrates her how Paula is usually only mentioned in a footnote when talking about Michael's crimes. She said, quote, she was such a wonderful person. She had a whimsy and innocence. Paula also wanted to be a chef. And she was also a very tiny girl. She was under five feet. Wow. She had curly blonde hair, blue eyes, and she was described as having cheeks that dimpled like Katie Couric when she smiled. Oh, that's so specific. That's so cute. Wow. On June 15th, 1982, Deborah Smith Taylor, 23, was driving with her husband when their car ran out of gas. This was near Danielson, Connecticut. The plan was for the pair to split up, try and find gas, you know, fill up a thing for gas, and then bring it back to their car. While walking down the road, Michael saw Deborah picked her up. Now they, unfortunately, she was in the grips of what is now a serial killer. He then proceeded to rape and strangle her. Deborah's body was found three months later in Canterbury, Connecticut, 
there was actually a jogger that came across mm. just her skeleton at that point. Ugh. Mm-hmm. That's so awful. Yeah. I mean, the whole summertime. I was just going to say, summer definitely sped up the decomposition, which is atrocious to think about. It's awful. 19-year-old Robin Stavinsky from Norwich, Connecticut, was hitchhiking on November 19th, 1983, which was Thanksgiving Day. Yeah. And she never made it to her destination. Mm. Michael kidnapped Robin, dragging her into a wooded area on the grounds of the state hospital in Norwich, where he sexually assaulted her, strangled her to death before covering her body in leaves. Mm. Joggers found her body a week later. That's so awful. Robin's murder was actually the missing puzzle piece for investigators who realized that her murder matched Deborah's and Tammy's mm. very specifically, almost the same MO, you know, right. they didn't have a body at that point for Tammy, but they were thinking, oh my God, we just found this other woman. Yeah. This is crazy. Strangulation, sexual assault in a wooded area. Yeah. This is when they realized there was a serial killer targeting young girls. Mm. On April 22nd, 1984, it was Easter Sunday, when 14-year-old Leslie Shelley and 14-year-old April Brunius were walking home by themselves from the movies near their hometown of Griswold, Connecticut. When the girls were walking, they were picked up, you'll never guess, by Michael Bruce Ross. Now this is new for Michael. There's two of them. When the girls noticed that Michael had driven way beyond their requested drop-off point, April actually pulled out a knife. And she attempted to stop him from driving, let them go. Unfortunately, Michael so easily disarmed her. And then he he kept driving until they were in Rhode Island, which is, wow. He really was chancing it. Mm -hmm. Having two victims in the car? Once they were somewhere called Beach Pond, Michael bound both girls' hands and feet before he proceeded to then untie April's feet and force her to walk from his car into the woods. It's not really sure how far into the woods, but it was a little ways. He then raped her and he strangled her. Once he got back to the car, he immediately killed Leslie. He didn't even rape her. He just immediately killed her. Same way, strangling. He then loaded April's body in the car because Leslie was already in the car, drove to Preston, Connecticut, and he disposed of both of their bodies in a culvert. I think it's very sinister that april was the one that tried to fight him off by pulling the knife on him right and then he in turn only sexually assaulted april i think maybe to like humiliate her mm-hmm. or just try and put her in her place like you tried to defend yourself from me you tried to fuck with me and this is what you get which yeah. is disturbing very disturbing 17 year old wendy barbaro also from griswold connecticut was last seen walking down state highway 12 on her way to a convenience store on june 13th 1984 Michael had been seen following Wendy in his car, and he got out, began talking to her, and then very quickly pulled her over a stone wall Mm. into a wooded area that led to an open field. This is where he sexually assaulted her, then forced her to turn over onto her stomach before strangling her. Wendy's body was found two days later on June 15th. And they said that they found her body under a pile of rocks. So he's covering them. It's funny because sometimes he's not covering them sometimes he's using leaves he uses rocks or he threw them into you know the river or the gorge like what happened with the first victim Mm -hmm. so his mo while it's very similar rape and then strangle his disposal method is very all over the place yeah 
Yeah. And I will say too, where he had Wendy flip over onto her stomach before mm-hmm. he sexually assaulted her, that was actually his method for sexually assaulting all of his victims, Yeah, which I'm thinking, you know, he doesn't want to look at their face. Yeah. He doesn't want to think of them as human. He wants to dehumanize them as much as possible. Right. And just rape this person and then strangle her and be done and mm-hmm. not look at her face. Yeah. On the day she disappeared, witnesses told police that they saw a thin white man wearing glasses and driving a blue subcompact car that looked like a Toyota following Wendy. Witness descriptions led police to Michael Bruce Ross. Hmm. There was actually another incident on April 26th, 1982, where Michael knocked on the door of a pretty isolated home in Licking County. He said that he had to borrow a flashlight to fix his car. His car had broken down. And when he came back to the house that was occupied by a pregnant woman, it seemed like the pregnant woman was the sole occupant of the house at the time. Mm -hmm. Maybe her husband was out. Maybe she just was living there alone. Right. But he took that opportunity and he asked if he could go inside and use the phone. Mm. Once he was inside, he tried to overpower the woman. But despite her being pregnant and a woman... (laughs) Much to Michael's chagrin, right? he was thinking, oh, she's pregnant. She's a a woman. She's inferior to me. I'm going to overpower her. Guess what, bitch? This woman is an off-duty police officer. Hell yeah. She fought Michael off, then called her colleagues and gave them a description clear as day as Michael's fleeing, running for the hills. He actually received a strict sentence, quote-unquote, of 16 days of psychiatric treatment because his precious mommy dearest and his dada bailed him out of jail a few weeks later on May 11th. Jesus Christ. Just barely a month after he was bailed out was when he murdered Deborah Taylor. That's awful. So if his asshat parents had let him rot in jail just a little bit longer, Mm -hmm. Deborah would still be with us. That's awful. Mm -hmm. Wow. So after police received the descriptions about the blue compact car, they had a listing that they developed of 3,600 potential cars and their drivers or owners. And so they found Michael on June 28th, 1984, Mm. after they went to chat with him, Mm -hmm. because he happened to be the first person on their list. That blows my fucking mind. What a sign. Like, if that's not a sign that says... Put this man behind bars and get him off the street. I don't know what is. Literally. Just the random. Yeah. A one in 3,600 chance that they go talk to this man first. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens. That's a very, I would not like those odds. Right. That's nuts. With my luck, it would be like 3,600. Right. (laughs) Right. And it's so interesting, too, because he, since the last murder of Wendy, he didn't drive that car again. So, like, I wonder if he knew that there was, like, a search for it, but he he just didn't – he just didn't drive it again. I think he was, like – I wonder if he knew it was coming to an end. It's not super known what was said exactly during the interview, but it was later discovered that Michael was, like, continuously dropping little hints while he was being interviewed by this detective that he was the man that they wanted. And I wonder if that was him just playing, like, a little game. And he must have thought it was so fun because he was a psychopath and he was totally fucked up in the head. But he was, like, dropping a little, like, pee oh And just 12 hours after they met with Michael... He had charges officially filed against him. That's how stupid this fucker was. Like, I can't. 
Yeah, he's trying to be slick, and then part of him is sweating. Yes, sweating because yes. he didn't anticipate them catching him so fast. Right, it was so quick. It was like days after Wendy was found, mm-hmm. if that. Crazy. He actually confessed to Wendy's murder and then even gave police directions to the rural dump site where they ended up finding the bodies of April and Leslie. Yeah, which is a miracle that Mm -hmm. he actually shared that information. Because some killers, you know, they get really tight-lipped and start asking for things, you know? But for as far as this goes, he just led them right there. It almost sounds like on his own free will. Yeah. Which is, thank God they were found. Mm Mm-hmm. Two days later, on June 30th, Michael again gave police directions, but to a different gravesite, this time that of Tammy Williams. Mm. This continued until he racked up a total of six homicide charges by July 5th. Wow. Holy shit. This is like lightning now. This yes. is like, I buried her here, and I dumped her here, and I did this to her, and I flipped her on her back and did this yes, in this yeah. location, and then I buried her under approximately three. Like, he just was <laughs> unloading. Yeah. Truly. In 1986, Michael and his defense team tried to get the murder charges for Leslie Shelley and April Brunias. Those are the 14-year-old girls that were murdered together. They tried to get them dropped. And they said it was because they weren't murdered in Connecticut. I think they were technically murdered in Rhode Island. The state countered that and, you know, were like, no, you're keeping that charge because they claimed that the girls were, in fact, murdered in Connecticut. And even if they weren't, the murder started and ended within Connecticut, so I guess it allowed the state to hold him accountable, which I didn't know was a rule, but okay. Good. Guess where he picked them up? Connecticut. Connecticut. Literally. He drove them over state lines. Yeah. The girl, poor April, pulled a knife on him. Right. In Con- All of this is transpiring in Connecticut. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't give a fuck where they were murdered. He kidnapped two 14-year-old girls, raped one of them. And murdered both. And guess what he did? Drove them back Back to to Connecticut Connecticut. and dumped their bodies in Connecticut. So as far as I'm concerned, 99.9% of all of this transpired in Connecticut. And so he should be charged for the crime because it was in Connecticut. Fuck that. (laughs) That makes me mad. Literally. Like trying to drop charges because they didn't happen in Connecticut, quote unquote. Okay, but so you're saying they happened? like. You're still admitting to that. If I pulled up this beach pond location right. in correlation to Connecticut, it can't be hours and hours no, and hours if no. you did all of this in the span of hours. Literally. You could probably stand at Beach Pond and look and see the border of Connecticut. Like, right. Don't. He thought he was. Play with me. He thought he was being slick, probably. Yeah. The yeah. defense, too, because they love to pull that. I know. I hate that. It took several years for actually, like, an official trial to happen, but in July of 1987, three years after his arrest, Michael had gone to trial and so far had accumulated over 120 years in prison. Not only that, but at this point, he also had four death sentences handed down to him. That's qu- that is quite the collection. Wow. Yeah, and it was a different one for... Almost each girl for mm-hmm. the six homicide charges. Right. So the 120 years came from Tammy Williams and Deborah Taylor. And then he got a death sentence each for April Brunius, Leslie Shelley, Wendy Barbaro, and Robin Savinsky. Good. One for every And good, as he should have. Mm-hmm. It apparently took the jury only 86 minutes to find him guilty. 
and then only four hours to land on the punishment of death for one of his trials. I think that's great. Four hours. They were like, so we're going to have lunch. Let's in the AC. It's a little hot out. Let's, let's just chill. This has been a lot. Whew. And then they were like, yeah, this fucker's going to die. They probably all looked at each other like, all right, guys, say the verdict on three. Yeah. One, two, three, death penalty. Yes. Right? <laughs> like, seriously. And, you know, he remained in jail. And in the 1990s, he decided to, you know, fight those charges. And he really wanted to get him overturned. And he was like, he was so like, I do not want to be executed. Like, I'm going to fight this. Appeal, appeal, appeal. And it sucks because he had so many different trials and so many different charges that he would have to appeal like each one. And that just constantly brought the families back into it, which sucks and is so unfair. Yeah. And what a waste of one, everybody's time to the poor jury. And yeah. three, just like taxpayer dollars, dude. Stop. Yeah. The waste of resources. Mm -hmm. And he was actually successful at one point in this effort of getting it overturned. But so he was eventually not sentenced to die, but then they did like resentence him in two May of 2000. So he did, he escaped it for a little bit, but it, no matter what, it just ended up being back. During his time in prison, Michael wrote an article in 1998 titled, quote, it's time for me to die an inside look at death row. He talked about how he had these extremely intense urges that he described as being like living with an obnoxious roommate and that he could never escape them. He said he would experience, quote, orgasmic pleasure from acting out his fantasies of hurting, raping, and killing women. But after doing so, he, quote, felt such a sense of loathing and self-hatred and then wished for death so he could be free of this cycle. Ugh. They tried a couple different things on him in prison. They actually put him on the female contraceptive Depo-Provera. It's an injection. Mm -hmm. It was described as lowering his testosterone levels to that of a prepubescent boy. Yeah. And he said this significantly reduced his violent thoughts. However, he was on the Depo shot, I believe it was a little over a year, mm -hmm. and he was having liver issues. He had to stop taking the medication, so his thoughts came back full force. Yeah. Over a year later, he was put on a different contraceptive, and while this definitely helped, mm -hmm. it did not work 100%, and it definitely was not as effective as the Depo-Provera shot. Mm, yeah. And he was, like, reading this whole article. This is the article that I found was – it was written and sent in, you know, to Notre Dame. As soon as he starts off, he says, quote, I am a condemned man on Connecticut's death row. When most people think of death row inmates – I'm the type they think of. I'm the worst of the worst. A serial killer who raped and murdered eight women in three different states, assaulted several other women, and stalked and frightened many more. Okay, like, that's part of the antisocial personality. He's hyping himself up. He thinks he's hyping himself up. Like, I'm a badass, you know. He really is trying so hard to sound cool, which makes me nauseous because he does not sound cool. I think it's really interesting that they put him on. So Depo-Provera is that shot you might, like, you guys who are listening who might be female or if you're a, somebody who's never heard of that or, like, maybe has a partner that's a girl and takes birth control, whatever. Depo-Provera is usually the shot that people, they refer to usually as Depo, like a Depo shot. It's one that um, usually every three months you have to go and get a new shot It's for it to be efficient. But I thought that was really in interesting when I read that and I was like, he's getting... Oh, he's taking birth control. Okay. 
and you know, in that article, he did say like it helped, blah blah blah, and then the liver problem, which again, boohoo. And then I would rather him have a little bit of fatty liver than murder some women, right? I just thought that was so interesting that that's what they put him on, and that it kind of worked. Yeah, like why are we not examining that more? And maybe people who are known registered sex offenders yes. who have you know, child abuse, child sexual assault cases against them, people who are pedophiles. Like, you don't change, I'm sorry, you don't change a pedophile with rehab. You don't change a pedophile with therapy. You don't change a pedophile with prison time. Sorry, that's just how they are. That's how they are wired. Yes. And if we could maybe get some pedophiles getting a shot every three months and they don't want to be pedophiles anymore or they don't want to go around violently raping and attacking women anymore mm-hmm. or people who are having these violent mental thoughts and these urges yeah i mean why let's not go it literally let's go let's go jabbing people around i'll help literally <laughs> right my god let's look into this more people mm-hmm. absolutely like i said in may of 2000 a new penalty hearing occurred and michael was actually reinstated with the fate of execution at this point, though, Michael had not been indicted for the murders of all eight women. He was finally charged with the murder of Paula Pereira in the fall of 2000. I, so that's almost 20 years later. DNA samples from Paula's body were compared and matched with the DNA investigators obtained from Michael. Mm. So finally, in August of 2001, Michael was extradited from his Connecticut prison cell to the Sullivan County Maximum Security Prison in Fallsburg, New York, to finally face arraignment in the rape and murder of Paula Pereira. Mm -hmm. He pled guilty on September 4th, 2001, and was sentenced to 8 to 25 years in prison. He stated, quote, I regret that this has taken so long to be taken care of, Mm. which I took as I regret that I didn't get recognition for this until now. That's a good point. Absolutely. He doesn't regret a thing. Mm -hmm. And Paula's family, too, was like, why the hell did he only get 8 to 25 for this murder? They are quoted as saying it was due to extreme emotional disturbance, which no shit. He was extremely emotionally disturbed the whole time. Why not only give 8 to 25 years? I think probably it's because they knew that it didn't matter. Yeah. But it does, though, to the family. It's the principle. Right. He also had that amount of time, almost 20 years, to tell somebody, hey, so, you know, I had six homicide charges. Right. You know, the two 14-year-old girls, and then this one, this one, this one. Mm-hmm. I told you where to find this one's body, and da 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 what do you know? We're missing two. Mm. I was also responsible for Paula Prevera and Zhang Tu. Yeah. Yeah. Hello? I know. So he doesn't regret a thing. Like, no. that's a load of BS. And I think you're absolutely right. He wanted recognition for his skills, essentially, is how he was thinking of it. You know, like, he was proud. Why isn't he getting recognition for what he did? Mm-hmm. So messed up. In October of 2004, Michael decided to stop fighting that inevitable fate that he faced and chose to end all further appeals of his execution. Everyone was against this. His lawyers were absolutely like, no, we're still going to get you out of this. His sister, his family was like, no, like you, we're still fighting for you. We're not going to allow you to have the death. Like we're not going to, you're not going to be killed for this. And even there was even people like the public that were like, no, no, no. You, like, you cannot be executed. There was a whole bunch of people rallying for Michael's survival. 
There were so many people against his execution. Hundreds. Yeah, and I mean, he wrote the article. He titled, It's Time for Me to Die. Mm -hmm. An inside look at death row, where he said he wished for death to be free of this cycle of mental torment, the violent thoughts. So a lot of people felt like he's saying he wants to die. Why are we then allowing him to get the way out that he wants? Yeah. He doesn't want to suffer the rest of his life behind bars, having these thoughts and facing the consequences of his actions. He wants to die. He wants the death penalty. Right. Why are you then giving it to him? Right. His execution date was set for January 26th of 2005. And much to his unfortunate chagrin, it kept being delayed. And again and again and again. Even though he chose to stop fighting it, the appeals were still getting through from the public, his family and friends, and it still, it just kept, it was just kept going. On January 9th, Michael was supposed to be executed, but four hours before he was to die, it was called off. Four hours. And that happened one more time where just hours before it was called off. And as much as I hate this fucker, that's a pretty psychological torment. That's pretty intense. That's so crazy. Like, imagine you're just sitting there and you're processing and you're thinking, okay, right. you know, in four hours, I'm going to go through this whole process. And then they're like, psych bitch. Yeah. Better luck next time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Finally, on May 13th of 2005, Michael Bruce Ross was finally executed by lethal injection just a little bit after 2 a.m. He did not have a special last meal. He ate the communal last meal at the prison that was like turkey a la king and rice and like a beverage. And he did not have any final words besides the classic no, no thank you. This was actually the first execution in New England in 45 years. Wow. So that's also why there was a lot of debate. Like, you know, we haven't done this for 45 years. Why now? Mm -hmm. In a New York Times article, they stated, In defiance of public defenders and others who wanted to save him, Michael Bruce Ross chose to forego further appeals. Ross convinced judges he was competent, smirked at psychiatrists who said he was suicidal, and often seemed exasperated by his inability to reshape his image. Mm. There were actually nine family members of the victims present for his death when he was executed by lethal injection. A lot of the family members were very torn Mm. about this. Yeah. You know, they were saying nothing is going to bring back our loved one, but at least he's done. We don't have to think about him anymore. But there also, like you said, Liz, was a lot of debate around whether or not he was fit for the death penalty, whether people thought it was appropriate, whether they thought it was ethical. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of ethics around the death penalty anyway, but especially in this case, it seemed like a lot of the debate was around whether he was even competent to be waiving these appeals on his own and accept the death penalty for himself. Right. He had actually attempted suicide on three separate occasions during his time in prison. Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, such a double edged sword. Yeah. Prison sucks. The conditions (laughs) in prison are awful. Right. But at the same time, like, you know, why was he all of a sudden waving his appeals? Why was he saying, okay, now is the time that I accept my fate? At one point, he even admitted that he was seeking execution because of, quote, a desire to end my own pain. Public defenders felt like the deplorable conditions he was being kept in also led to him dropping his appeals, and a former warden at the prison described Michael's environment as being like living in a submarine or a cave. That's awful. 
Not, not going to lie, that is awful. And there have been documented instances where people on death row, they're appealing, they're appealing, they're appealing, and then finally they're like, I cannot take this anymore. Yeah. I cannot take this anymore. I see the sunlight for an hour a day, if that. Yeah. I'm eating prison food. Right. Literal prison food. Yeah. I'm in a cell. Solitary confinement, that's a whole other ethical debate, ethical dilemma. Right. So a lot of people on death row do accept, you know, lethal injection or other forms of execution. Right. As a way to end their suffering in deplorable conditions. Yeah. And how is that? okay too you know like i can't put myself in the shoes of these victims family members and how they might have been feeling but i don't know it's just it's very complicated yes yeah michael was never prosecuted for the rape and murder of his first known victim zong nayap too authorities claimed they couldn't get in touch with the family and that they moved back to vietnam and authorities took this as a wish for privacy and for no further action into the case hmm Zong's family only learned that Michael was responsible for her death just one week before his scheduled execution. That's ridiculous. Lan Man Tu, Zong's older brother, stated, My sister went back to college one day, and then we heard she was dead, and that was it. It was thought likely that somebody, that whoever had murdered my sister, was one of these people who had the wrong wiring. They prey on strangers and are very difficult to catch unless they do something to attract attention. Mm-hmm. Lan also said that their father has never been able to talk about Zong's murder after it happened. Oh. Cornell police investigator Scott Hamilton said he reached out and contacted the family on two separate occasions to inform them that Michael Ross was a suspect in their loved one's murder, but he received no response. Hmm. Tompkins County District Attorney George M. Dentes had expressed that he felt like once Michael was sentenced to the death penalty in Connecticut, it made prosecution in New York near pointless, mm. especially as he wouldn't have been able to get the death penalty in New York State. Right. Lan Tu felt that this idea that they were uninterested or had moved back to Vietnam was shocking. Mm. He stated, quote, we've had the same phone number since 1969. We were in the phone book the whole time. It's awful. No effort, clearly, by the police. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe they were thinking, oh, a language barrier. Right, right. Or, I don't know, we got everybody else. Yeah. What does it matter? It's it's bullshit. Yeah, that's terrible. Wow. Zong's father stated, quote, his execution would go a long way toward putting my mind at rest and giving me peace. Mm-hmm. I hope this will go ahead, that nothing's going to stop it. Certainly in my mind, I have questions about the death penalty, but when someone's in my position, abstract considerations are no longer that important. Oh. Lon stated, quote, My feeling about it mostly is that it's such a shame that her life was snuffed out. She would have been a really good person to have in the world, not just for her family, but for society. Oh. Mm-hmm. Wow. So to this day, well, obviously to this day, because he no longer is with us. Right. But he was never prosecuted for her murder, never prosecuted for her rape. Yeah. He dumped her body in a gorge, yeah. for Christ's sake. And he admitted yeah. to a psychiatrist, yeah, so I did all of this stuff, yada, yada, yada. You guys are missing one. There was this Vietnamese Cornell student. Yeah. I did that to her, too. Right. It's probably because, you, like you had said, they considered it suicide. Yeah. I mean, how does one strangle themselves and then jump off you know like it's just there was no they mm-hmm. just it clearly was dismissed right Ugh. wow yeah it's so crazy it's awful and clearly he was evil he was so evil the things he said in that article that we read excerpts from 
it's just, it blows your mind because he was so blatantly evil and so wicked. Yeah, and just the fact that there was so much support and then so much debate and scrutiny about him getting the death penalty, I think it's very interesting and also brings up a lot of very interesting thoughts and debate around the death penalty itself. Right. Me personally, I think because he himself wanted the death penalty, he himself said, I wish to die. Okay. Sorry, yeah. no death penalty for you. Yeah, you're going to sit there and you're going to think about what you've done. I'm sorry that the prison conditions are deplorable. We need to be fixing that. Absolutely. Sure, sure. But you're getting life. You're going to face the consequences. If right? you do not get the easy way out, you no. do not get what you want. No. No one wants that. Nobody wants him to just have, you know, an excuse and then just be done. That's not yeah. fair. And there were even people in the crowd when he was given the lethal injection. There was a family member. I don't know if we identified them. I don't know if they want to be identified. But there was a family member that said as he was dying, he said, it's too peaceful. Wow. He said, this is too peaceful. peaceful. It's too peaceful. Knowing what that man did to not only that person's loved one, but seven other people that we know of. Right. It's terrible. Too easy. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, guys, we want to know what you think. Obviously, the death penalty is a highly, highly, highly controversial topic. However, it is very interesting mm-hmm. and something, you know, that is very easy to debate. We want to know what you think as far as did he deserve the death penalty? Was there some ethical dilemmas as far as mental health and mental stability? That's definitely debated. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at TrueCrimeNE. All lowercase. Or you can send us an email at TrueCrimeNE at gmail.com. We also have a website, TrueCrimeNE.com. You could go to our contact page and use our handy-dandy website submission tool, where you can send us questions, comments, your thoughts on this case, other cases we have covered. You could even use it to suggest cases based in New England, please. You can be anonymous if you so choose. You could leave your name as well. If you leave your name and we decide to cover the case that you suggested, you'll get a shout out at the top of the episode. Thank you again, Maya C. And thank you again, Craig S. Craig S., you use this website submission tool. Nice. Good work. Thank you guys so much for bringing this case to our attention. We hope we did a good job covering it. But as always, you guys don't have to, you know, do anything. You don't have to chat with us. You guys just being here and listening means so much to us. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye.